Mac Power Users, Episode 264, Workflows with John Gruber. Welcome back to a very special episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd alongside David Sparks. Hey, David. Hey, Katie Floyd. How are you today? I'm doing well. And we are joined today by our special guest. Welcome to Mac Power Users for the first time, Mr. John Gruber. Welcome, John. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for joining us. You know, you have been on our list, I think, since we originally started doing the workflow show. I'm sorry it took us 264 episodes to get you here, but uh, we're going to make the most of our time together now. I remember talking to David about it at Macworld Expo. Well, like 2009. <laughs> I don't know if it doesn't matter which one it was, I guess, at this point, because they're they were all a long time ago. But it was definitely one of the January ones, not one of those weird on the way yeah. out. Right. Super Bowl weekend ones or whatever the heck they wound up with. But I, I and I said yes. And I'm uh, I, I don't say yes to things just to make people happy. I said yes, because I meant it. I thought that sounded like fun. And <laughs> here it is. Twenty fifteen. But anyway, so that's I'm all right. You said yes. And you're here. Well, you've been kind of busy. You've been a uh, uh, blogger, app developer, man about town, specialist in um, super secret drinking locations in Philadelphia. <laughs> Hanging out with Phil Schiller. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for those few in our audience who don't know John, John is, I always consider kind of like the, um, the, the top of the crowd blogger in the Apple ecosystem. John, You've been blogging about Apple and Apple related things since when did you first start in the early 2000s, wasn't it? Uh, August 2002 was when Daring yeah. Fireball started. Yeah, I mean, you know, still when Apple was still recovering, really. And and you were a programmer before that. You worked. Um, in fact, you worked on BB Edit, right? Well, I wasn't an engineer on BB Edit. It's funny. The funny thing is, is so from 2000 to 2002, actually, right before I started Daring Fireball, I did work full time at, at Barebone Software. Um and I did marketing, I did tech support, uh, I wrote big chunks of the user manual. Um, and, and all of that was kind of a very exciting time because that was when uh, BBET was making the shift from macOS 9 to macOS 10. Uh, so it was a great time to be there, but I was not a software engineer. And the thing that makes that funny is that I have a computer science degree and none of the software engineers at Barebone Software at the time had computer science degrees. Yeah. But they had been through the hard, school of hard knocks, probably, right? Right. And so, the, uh, but you know that, that's pretty interesting, though, that you you had that job, and I guess we should don't want to dwell on a long time, but so you had a good job, and you know, two thousand two, everybody was making tons of money off blogging, I'm sure. So, <laughs> I mean, that that was quite a leap for you to to leave that job and and just start a blog. Well, no, that wasn't, I wouldn't say that's why I left. Uh, okay. It was coincident. And it, it felt like, it did feel like at the time, blogging was so um, new. And it was weird. At the time, I still felt like, I felt like some people who, I, I had the itch to do it for a couple of years, ever since, you know, Dave Weiner. I, I've been reading Dave Weiner stuff since before, uh, you know, the word web blog or blog was even coined. Uh, and Kotke and a few others. And I felt like, hey, that's something I could do. And I've always wanted to be a writer. And I never wanted to, like, and the style of writing I wanted to do was sort of columnist style. And I knew that in traditional media, media the way they'd become, like, a regular columnist was you kind of had to work your way up and be, like, the city hall reporter or, you know, 
or if you was writing about tech, you know, you had to be the one dealing with the PR stuff coming in and just writing stupid news stories. And I had no interest in that. I wanted to go right to writing what I wanted to write. And I saw self-published, just writing your own blog is the way to do that. You just start writing what you want to write, something opinionated and with a voice, um, a very particular point of view, personal point of view. Um, but it was so new. I, I like, I think today people would never, it, people might not think twice about it, but at the time it seemed like, well, how could you write, how could I write something about the Mac industry under my name while I'm a bare bones employee? Not that I, you know, and I could easily not slag direct competitors to bare bones products, but it just felt like, you know, PR wise, that was sort of mm, uncertain territory. I mean, think about the way today that somebody, even today, somebody who works at Apple is not going to write an Apple blog. And bare bones is obviously a very, a much more open company, a much more relaxed company than Apple. But at the time in 2002, I, I think everybody sort of had a, let's take a wait and see approach with, with stuff like this. When I was, I didn't college, know, I, and I'll just say this, just to be, to put it all in clear. Yeah. I never went to like Rich Siegel and said, Hey, I would like to write a personal blog, uh, you know, called daring fireball about blank, blank and blank. Is that okay? And he said, no, I just didn't even ask. It just felt, it even felt to me as someone who was in charge of bare bones marketing, like, eh, I don't know. When I was in college, I got my, one of my, part of my undergraduate degree was like political philosophy. And I spent a lot of time studying the founders of the, of the United States. And back then everybody had their own newspaper and it was like a thing, you know, I mean, liberals, conservatives or whatever, you know, federalists, they had different names back then, but everybody had their own like platform that they would talk from. And so, and I'm reading this and learning this in the seventies and eighties when, media is controlled by two or three people, you know, in the country. And I remember being jealous thinking, wouldn't it be great if anybody could have their own platform and publish their own paper? And so when blogging showed up that that's one of, you know, to me, it like triggered something that I've been waiting for for years, but then you went out there and, and started it. And one of the things about your blog that I love is you do long opinion pieces, but you also do like one sentence blog entries, which are probably the favorite, my favorite thing that you do. Cause I don't know how you do it, but you just like nail something in one sentence. So I, I guess the short story is if you're not subscribing to John's blog and you're interested at all in the Apple world, you should. So go do it. We'll put a link in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you, now, John. I don't know that I've ever heard your origin story. I mean, I knew that you worked for, for bare bones for a while, but hearing that you were a computer science major, how did you get into the Mac? Especially, you know, then those weren't exactly the glory days of, of the Mac. So uh, let's see how short I can make it. Um, I think I've got this fairly well down. So I, I've always been obsessed with computers always. And I remember my, my mom's brother, my uncle Jack, um, was sort of an electronics enthusiast. This would be like, you know, his, you know, 60s, 70s, you know, before you would, you could even be a computer enthusiast. Um, and I remember being a very small child and he had, I don't even know what it was, but he had something hooked up to his TV that could play Pong. This mm. is like pre Atari 2600. And it, I, I was super young. I don't know how young, three, four, five, maybe probably older than three, four or five, um, but this paddle in my hand could move a thing on the screen. Like it was sort of like that awe that you get of being on TV, except to me, it was even better, even better than like me being on TV was me controlling something on the TV. And I could not understand how this worked. And I remember being obsessed with the way coin up video games worked. How, how is this possible? Right? Like a pinball machine, I hit this button and this mechanical paddle moves and I had fun with that. I could see it, 
but how, when I move this stick, do I move this character Pac-Man? How is this possible? Um, always obsessed with them. Uh, at our school, we had two types of computers for the, I think for the most part, uh, it wasn't really like an organized put computers in schools campaign. I think it was sort of up to the individual teachers, you know, just a public school, uh, grade school, but most of them in the early years were TI 99 four A's. And I liked those. They were fine. They were better than not. Every minute I got on them was better than a minute that was not on a computer, but we also had some Apple twos. And it was mm -hmm. so clear to me that the Apple two was the superior machine. Um, so of course we had, we did have an Atari 2600 at home and I played an awful lot of time on that just playing games, but I really wanted a computer. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of my friends did too. And the argument a lot, most of my friends got was, well, computers were very expensive, especially like an Apple II. Uh, and I'm, you know, their parents were like, I'm not spending all this money on something that you're just going to use for video games. We already have a video game thing. It's a waste of money. You're not going to use it. My parents wouldn't buy me an Apple II or any personal computer because their argument was that if we bought you a computer, you'd never leave the house. Uh, and I think they were probably right. So I didn't own a computer until I went to college, uh, in 1991, I went to Drexel university and they had a program where they didn't require it. Well, they required that every student had access to a Macintosh, um, which didn't mean you had to own one cause they did have a pretty big lab where you could do all your work, but it was, you know, highly suggested that everybody buy one and they had great student pricing at the time. And so I've been a Mac owner ever since 1991. So did um, the fact did the fact that Drexel required a Mac play at all in your role to choose that university? Only uh, to a small degree. That that certainly uh, didn't hurt, and I was very excited about that. But it was um, they also offered me by far the best scholarship of any uh, university, and that was that was more like the the scholarship that they offered me was worth more than the price of a Macintosh. So you know it was too you know win win to put it in. No it's, kind of, it's kind of wild that you would start a computer science major with out ever having owned a computer, but I guess so you worked on them in school. Throughout yeah, high school. yeah. 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 And I was, you know, on, we had like a pretty good, we had a great, um, we had a great, um, I don't know. We didn't call it computer science. We just called it like programming or something, but we had a great, you know, for a very small public high school, we had a great computer teacher. Her name was Donna Spatz. And, um, you know, we had a pretty good team that competed in, in, uh, programming contests and stuff like that. And we did pretty well. We actually, you know, I grew up in, you know, outside Philadelphia, uh, here in Pennsylvania, but we, I remember, I think it was my senior year, the team of five of us did well enough that we got a, we got a trip to Houston, Texas to compete in like a national programming contest. And so, so what was it then? Like Fortran basic? Were basic. You? We, I did yeah. basic. I wish I, uh, I think it was either basic or Pascal. And I think I was still writing mostly basic and I, much to my own, I, I would really wish I would have gotten more into Pascal. I think that, and I think that was only myself to blame. I think I would have been even more productive on the team. Maybe I had my senior year. I was writing Pascal. Actually, it's all kind of fuzzy to me now. 10 go t 10 print. Hello. 20 yeah. go to 10. Yeah. yeah now that I think, of, now that I think <laughs> about it, I don't think we would have been as competitive if I was still writing basic. I think it was, I think it was Pascal. Um, anyway, so flash forward to college. Um, I, my freshman year, I was an engineer, but it didn't matter. Freshman year, it didn't matter what you picked. I picked electrical engineering and it was like this, I don't know what the hell I was thinking. Um, it was sort of something, something, you know, just vague notion in my head, something, something you could get a job as an engineer. Um, so sophomore year, I switched to computer science, which was much more interesting to me. Um, but, uh, and Drexel university for most of the programs like that, the hard science, the bachelor of science, 
programs. It's a five-year program, not a four-year program. And you spend your last three years with, um, instead of semesters, they have, uh, they go by the seasons. They have four semesters a year and you spend two of them in, in classes and two of them in, uh, uh, internships, paid internships that, you know, you, you, local area businesses. So by like my third year, I'd had a, I scored a really good, uh, internship at a windows software development company outside the city. Um, and I really figured out, boy, this is not for me. I, I don't enjoy this at all. Um, and in the meantime, I'd spent three or four years at the student newspaper at Drexel, which is actually where I spent way more time than I ever did on my classes where I got into graphic design, um, and writing and stuff like that. And so, you know, I graduated in 96. I had all of this experience in Quark Express, um, which is great, great training, like a weekly newspaper with a hard deadline where like, if we don't get it to the printer by Thursday night at a certain time, the paper doesn't come out on Friday. Uh, it was great experience for learning Quark Express. Um, and I'd gotten good at it. Like, I mean, is this interesting to you? Yeah, it is. And it's funny because you always talk about typography on your site. That's one of your kind of themes. Right. And uh, I never really appreciated where that came from. So you were, you were, an, you were an ink stained wretch. Yeah. So here, here's, <laughs> so what happened to me, the first year I started writing for the college newspaper was I, all I want, and again, all I wanted to do was write like an op-ed column, like a Dave Barry style humorous look at, you know, either current events or stuff, you know, sometimes, you know, college related stuff, local, you know, stuff, something that was an in-joke to only to students at Drexel. Um, and I was nervous about it cause I, I really hate trying to, I hate submitting something and, you know, asking and, and risking rejection. Um, but I had a couple of friends who were already on the newspaper and I was printing up like fake little newsletters for like my dorm floor and stuff like that. Uh, and they were like, what are you doing? You should just submit a column to the newspaper. The columnists suck. And I was like, yeah, they're terrible. And they're like, well, yeah, so did, you know, you're going to get in. So I did, I wrote a column and sent it and the way to submit it, you had to show up in the office, the newspaper office with a fl floppy disk with a Mac write <laughs> file on it. Yeah. Uh, gave it to them. The guy puts it in the computer, copies it over. And, and, um, I don't even think, I don't even think they told me it was going to be, I think I had to like wait till Friday and I like opened the newspaper and there was my column. And I was like, Holy shit, I'm in print. This is great. Uh, and then I did talk to them and they were like, yeah, that was great. You know, if, if you could do, you know, you want to send one in every week, that'd be great. We'd love it. You know, it's, it's, you know, you know, write as many as you can. It was a once a week newspaper. So I did it. And like the third or fourth week, um, I submitted a column and again, I was, you know, the gist of it, was I was trying to be funny more than anything else. And halfway through, I was reading the printed version of it. Halfway through, there was a joke that was, to my mind, the joke was completely neutered by an editing change that had been made. And I thought, boy, that sucks. They took all the, all the piss and vinegar out of that joke. I wonder what I did. And I, all I could think is I did something wrong grammatically. And I went back to my original and reread my original. I don't remember. I wish I could remember the details of it, but I couldn't figure out what I did wrong. I really couldn't. I was just like looking at it and I'm like, this must be some rule that I don't know. And I'm, I've never been very good at being able to describe the rules of grammar, English grammar and, and stuff like that just comes to, it's just how it sounds to me. Uh, so, you know, I, I just thought this must be one of those rules I've never internalized. So the next week I came with my column and I found the op-ed editor, a uh, really nice guy named Francis. Uh, and I said, hey, Francis, I said, I got a question for you from last week. Here's what I wrote. And here's what you guys printed. What did I, what did I do wrong? And he goes, oh, you didn't do anything wrong. He goes, your column was, it just was one line too long to fit. <laughs> so I just found a place where I could make a change to make it a little <laughs> yeah, smaller. Oh, so, man. It, so it fit exactly. <laughs> 
And as wow. soon as he said that, I thought I need to become the op-ed editor. <laughs> so I started hanging around the office and people then, you know, like people he'd go on, you know, it wasn't like I tried to force him out of his job, but as soon as he switched to something else, I think he went to work in like the business office or something. I volunteered to be the op-ed editor and, and took it over specifically so that my, my column always got a good position on the page and was never again edited for something as stupid as that. But that's how I got into Quirk Express. And then as I got better at it and learned more, I thought, you know what, I really, I need to redesign this entire newspaper. (laughs) And so that's why I wanted to become editor in chief of the newspaper. Like the traditional route was to go through the news team to be like on the, you know, covering what the president of the university says, what the provost says, some, you know, the student council is, is blah, blah, blah. And I never had any interest in any of that. Um, and just left it to the people who did, but eventually, you know, by my, my fourth year, I was editor in chief and, and led a redesign of the paper. I was actually pretty proud of it. I think it actually, I have old copies of it in my closet. I think it stands up extremely well for something I did 20 years ago. And one of the things that's pretty cool is I picked as the headline font and the sans serif that was used throughout the whole newspaper, uh, Adobe Myriad, which, you know, years later, Apple adopted as, as their font. I've heard so many people who have taken similar paths because I think you either came up in an age before the web or as the web was coming up or or after. And I think if you came up before web publishing was was popular, I mean, and it sounds like you came up in that age and to a certain degree I did because I was a yearbook geek, you know, back in, in high school, the yearbook staff and the newspaper staff hated each other. Although in college I was on the, the newspaper staff, but same type of thing as I was on the yearbook staff and that's how I used to, we used PageMaker and then ultimately in college for the newspapers is where we learned Quark. I didn't really have any interest in the reporting part of it. And it sounds like, you know, you had an interest in the column writing. I just wanted to be able to design the thing. I just wanted to be able to use the computer and nobody else really wanted to, but that was the piece that I was interested in is that I could take it and put the design on the computer and other people could write it and take the photos and, and do things like that. And it sounds like people of a certain generation came up learning how to do that. And then the next generation came up learning how to design things for the web. And now the next generation is coming up it's apps. They're, they're, they're no longer apps is the next thing is what they're building yeah. and learning how to program. Yeah. So I graduated in 1996. So in theory, we could have had a website, but we did not like I went and I don't know when they added a website, but, you know, clearly someone who would have been a freshman in 96, if they had gotten involved with the student newspaper, I'm sure by the time they graduated, there was. So I was, you know, either the last, maybe not the last class, but certainly the last I don't know what you would call it generation. You know, if you call like little four year, five year periods right, in college, right. a generation, the last one, not to have a website. We did have a gopher site though, <laughs> which is kind of funny. I yeah, think there were like, there were like 13 people on campus who knew how to use gopher and six of us were at the student newspaper. So we were publishing it on gopher for like the other seven. Yeah. But you were probably the first generation for lack of a better word who weren't putting together the paper literally by hand, by cutting and pasting and right. and mocking up by hand with Correct. X-Acto blades. Correct. No, we still had all that equipment in the, in the, the office. Like in the, there was a, I don't know, what do we call it? The production room. It was a little room that smelled like, uh, what's that stuff that was that, that aerosol stuff that you could use to stick The spray stuff. glue. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we still yeah. did a little bit of that. I forget why. 
There was a reason why for some stuff we still use that, but for the well, most part... Well, there was part, still some stuff. If you were doing fancy stuff, you couldn't do it on the computer yet. You couldn't do like a collage or anything fancy. Oh, no, we could do that. I remember yeah. what it was. It was because some of the national advertisers sent us camera-ready artwork. That's right. why. Okay. That was why. And 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 us scanning it and putting it in would have been, a, you know, why, why do that? It would have been one generation degraded. That was why. So we still had camera-ready artwork from national advertisers, and we would just leave a hole in the page. But we had great printers, absolutely fantastic printers um, that could print on 17, whatever the size was. Jeez, they were huge, huge sheets of paper. 11 by 17, something like that. Mm -hmm. So we could just print the whole, that was a big deal. Cause the earlier, that was the other reason we had the spray cans is when I first got there, we couldn't print the whole, it was a a tabloid sized newspaper. We couldn't print the whole thing on one piece of paper. So we would print it on legal and someone would have to go in and, and you know, it would be like, you know, court could do that really easily and had registration marks, but somebody had to go in there with the spray can and sort of put like three pieces of legal paper together to make a tabloid sheet that, that was ready to go to the printer. And whoever did that would come out by the end, like really pretty loopy. Yeah. <laughs> I I feel old because I remember in high school using the machines that you cranked that had the wheel, you know, and you, the carbon paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys, you guys probably know what I'm talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. A special paper you would type on, and it would create an inverse image of it on the back of it, and then you would attach it to a wheel, and you'd crank it by hand, and that's how you would make copies. Anyway, all um, right. So how now? How did you get like no to know so much about typography though? Because self-taught, okay. just self-taught obsession with it, you know, and um, they wouldn't. That was one of the things. It was just one of those crazy rules. Like I wanted to take all the typography courses at Drexel, but they had these bizarre prerequisites, which meant that the only way you could effectively, the only way you could take it is if you were a graphic design major, because there were a bunch of like prerequisites that all of the graphic design majors had to take freshman year. um, Cause the typography class was like a second or third year class for them. Uh, And it was all this drawing and stuff like that. And I just, I had no room. I, I had no room or interest in taking them. I just wanted to take the typography ones. And it was around that time, though. I mean, and, and it's the folly of youth, too, where I realized uh, I went, I had friends who were in the graphic design program, and I'd go and look at the student projects. And I was like, I already know more about graphic design and typography than than these students, you know, maybe not more than the professors. And I really wish I could have taken the course so I could learn from them. But I was like, I can I can self teach myself this. So and then and then we move into the Mac. Obviously, you were using the Mac to do Quark and to do all of these other things. But then you decided to, as you moved out, how did you to pursue the Mac in your career? Did you immediately then go to to BB or Edit or no, uh, so to Bare Bones gra- or no? So I graduated in 1996, and I didn't want to get a job as a programmer. And the web was taking off, so I did have an interesting skill set at the time. I could do graphic design. I could write. Uh, I knew, you know, as a programmer, I certainly was easy to do HTML. I found that easy to write. Um, but I was lazy and I really didn't want like a full-time job. And I figured out, like I had a friend, you know, who I went to, you know, did the computer science thing with who immediately left for California and got an excellent job at sun. And he would email and just say, dude, you should come out here, man. The jobs, it's crazy. You know, 96, 97. Um, but I, you know, I just wanted to sit around and play video games and stuff like that. So I found out that you could get um, like temp work if you knew Quark Express doing graphic design that paid, you know, uh, $20 an hour, $25 an hour. And if I could just do two of those a week, that was more than enough to pay my, you know, 
rent and and keep me up to you know with soda and video games and go to movies three or four times a week and stuff like that um and so I just did that and then eventually started just doing freelance, you know, also freelance web design and stuff like that, making websites for clients and stuff like that. Um, you know, I didn't really have a full-time job until I went to Bare Bones in uh, 2000. And I did work at the, you know, never a full-time employee, never a full-time employee, but I did through the temp agency, I got to know them and then eventually just worked for them directly freelance, you know, on and off when they needed it, uh, at the Philadelphia Inquirer, um, in their promotions department, which is the in-house sort of in-house ad agency. So like when the Inquirer itself needed, we called them house ads, you know, an ad for an Inquirer promotion that the promotions group was the one that would do it. Or if the, the automotive ad salespeople wanted a flyer to give around to, to promote Memorial Day weekend and try to get all the local car dealers to, you know, buy big ads selling cars for Memorial Day, you know, they'd come to us and we would do that. Right. Well, and then we know that you then went to Bare Bones and then you went to Daring Fireball. And so then I want to I want to talk a little bit about uh, Daring Fireball and and some of the workflows for how you're staying on top of the news and publishing that. But I want to take a quick break here and talk about our, our first sponsor for this episode, uh, our exclusive sponsor, actually, for this episode. Uh, and that is our good friends over at 1Password. And you've probably heard quite a bit in the news about uh, password breaches and do we need to be worried? Do we need to not be worried? You know, is my stuff going to be compromised? And this stuff is scary. And if nothing else, it's a good reminder that we need to stay on top of where we put our passwords and what we're using as our passwords. And 1Password is the tool of choice that I use for these types of things because 1Password is multiple tools in one. Um, you know, first and foremost, it's a place that you can put all of this information. It's going to allow you to store all of your logins for your various websites. You can store secure notes. You can store credit card information. Uh, you can even store licenses for your software. And then once you've got your passwords in there, uh, 1Password gives you the ability to generate strong passwords. So you don't have to make up things like my dog's name backwards, and then I'm going to add the year that I graduated from high school, and then i got to come up with something different for a different site. You know, 1Password has a strong password generator built in where you can pick a password based on length and maybe doesn't need digits or symbols or hyphens or however you want to make it so that there's no excuse not to have a unique password. Uh, and then once you've got your passwords in the vault, you can add the 1Password extension to all of your browsers. Uh, and then what that's going to let you do is it's going to allow you to use your master password, which is your key to everything in, in 1Password, to automatically fill all of those strong Unis pack passwords that you've created across various websites into those websites. So you don't have to worry about this massive 23-character password that you've created for this site. It's going to remember it, and it's going to automatically fill it for you so that there's really no excuse for you to have bad password policies so that you can know that you have strong, unique passwords across all of your various websites, but you don't have to remember them. You don't have to stick them on post-it notes. You don't have to write them in books. Uh, you don't have to keep them in a file that's called passwords that you keep on your desktop. Uh, you can do all of those things. Uh, and then all of this information is going to sync across your devices, whether you use iCloud, whether you use Dropbox, or if you're nervous about keeping the stuff in the cloud, you can even sync it uh, locally between Mac and iOS via Wi-Fi so that this data never leaves your network. Uh, and 1Password is also going to um, help you share this information. So if you've got multiple people in the family or maybe you've got an identity for yourself or for work, uh, you can store information in multiple vaults. So you can share a vault with your work colleagues and then keep a vault 
privately for yourself. So with 1Password, there's really no excuse. It's time to get your passwords in order. You can have strong and unique passwords across all of your devices. David's going to talk about it a little more later. Um, but in the meantime, you can go check them out over at 1Password.com. And thanks to our friends over at Agile Bits for their continued support of Mac Power users. So, John, you had all this experience in the kind of the college newspaper and and the you know, working in the newspaper in Philadelphia, along with the computer science degree. And those things kind of meld together as you get daring fireball off the ground. Um, what kind of steps did you take? I mean, with that knowledge of computer science plus publishing, what were the first steps you took to get everything going? Hmm. Well, like a lot of people at the time I, I had, I could have, I, you know, again, I'm not a great, programmer, but I'm good enough to make little things for myself. So at the time I was surveying the field for what I could use for, you know, like a, a I don't even know if we called them blog engines at the time, a CMS, you know, what was I going to use to publish the site? I knew I wanted to do it. Um, and nothing on that existed really pleased me. So of course, like a lot of people, I was thinking about writing my own and how would I write it and would it run on the server? Would it run locally? Um, and, and then came movable type and I forget, I think it was my friend, I think my friend, Nat Irons, um, who's a long time, I've, I've known him again, obviously since before during fireball, but he was a long time BB edit user. I think he brought it to my attention while it was still like in beta or something. Um, and I looked at that and it was written in Perl, which is a language I had, I had taught myself. That was my, my web programming language. Um, and I didn't, I looked at the source code for it and it was, it still is to me all these years later, it's written in a kind of Perl that to me is impenetrable. It's this object oriented style. And it's to me, quite frankly, over-engineered. Um, but I thought if I ever need to change something, I, I have a better chance of being able to figure out where to go to hack at it because it's in a language I know than if not. And I liked the basic gist of it, which was that it was a CGI that ran on your server. So you could get to it from any machine where you could reach the server and that it generated static files so that when people went to your site, they weren't hitting any kind of dynamic software thing that was going to slow things down, that you could serve files up as fast as Apache could serve a static file. Um, uh, so I dug into it and really Wait, tried. Wait, could I interrupt there just for one second? Because I know a lot of our listeners are not going to know what that means when you talk yeah. about static versus dynamic. Could well, you explain an, that just a little bit? In other words, like imagine if you just took a BB, took BB edit and made a new HTML file and just wrote the HTML with no no programming code or logic, just P tags and I tags and A tags for links, saved it, and then used uh, FTP programmer and SFTP program to put it on your server. And that's it. And then when people hit the website, all it does, all of the web server does is just send the HTML file to the client. It's, that's the way we used to write websites in the 90s for the most part. A dynamic thing would be if you go to the website and it's it's not just a static file where you're going. It's a program that's running on the server and the program hits a database and generates stuff dynamically. I mean, that's, and that today is how most of the modern web works, right? Like, so dynamic is like when you go to Amazon and you hit amazon.com and it says, hi, David. And there's a thing that says my profile and stuff like that. Obviously that's not a static file 
Yeah, you sure. know, unless everybody is named David. <laughs> and, and as a result, the tra- it's a lot more intensive on the server to right. do that. And if you get a lot of hits, it could it could bring things crashing down more exactly. easily. Exactly. And that's in today's world, that's not really much of a, pro- a problem. And most people with blogs run WordPress, which is dynamic uh, for the most part. And they use caching to catch up to anything like when you get a sudden burst of traffic and stuff like that. I just liked the way that movable type worked. It worked fundamentally it wasn't written the way i would write my own cms but it worked the way it would if i did um but there you know there were hitches to that like like one of the things that's a hitch with movable type is that if you change your templates if you change the style of your site because it's not dynamic because it's static every time you save save a post it saves a, a plain text html file or whatever you want on your server if you changed your templates, you have to do go through a rebuild process where it rebuilds every single post that you've had. And obviously, the longer you've been publishing and the more posts you have, the longer that sort of thing takes. But I knew that I wasn't going to be changing my templates very often. Um, and, uh, you know, this is going off in the weeds here, but I've set things up the way I configured movable type is... Um, I use server-side includes to include things like the style sheet. So I, when I do change the style sheet, the individual posts don't actually have to be rebuilt because they're just including those things on the fly. This is, you know, web programming, stupid stuff. But I, I just like the way, long story short, I like the way movable type worked. And I thought, and this is funny, and it comes into play a year or so later. I just thought because it's written in Perl, if I ever want to tweak something, I, I'll be able to tweak it. Um, and it worked out well. Um, and they also quickly added support for something called the Meta Weblog API, which was uh, a, it was actually invented by Evan Williams, who's still you know still at it. He's still in charge. He's doing Medium now, but he was the guy at Blogger at the time. And what this API was was a way that something other than um, logging into the web app of Movable Type, uh, any other client like on my Mac could. Uh, save and edit and create blog posts. And so, you know, quickly uh, Brent Simmons wrote a blog editor that was part of Net Newswire. And then he realized, well, this his idea was that a newsreader like Net Newswire should be read and write. And so you can read RSS feeds in Net Newswire, and then you could use the integrated blog editor to update your own. And then he quickly realized that that sounds good in a philosophical sense that you can read and write your blog from the same uh, thing, but that it didn't really make practical sense to have a blog editor in that newswire. So he spun it off into its own app called Mars edit, uh, which he eventually sold to uh, Daniel Jalkett's red sweater software. And it's Daniel still updating it today. And I'm still using it today. I, I mean, I would, I would venture to say 90 some percent of everything I've ever posted to BB edit has gone through Mars edit and still does today. So in other words, Mars edit is a real Mac app a native Mac app that can speak directly to my installation of movable type at Daring Fireball. And that's been fantastic. And in 2015, you're still using movable type for yeah. your blog. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's just, you know, I, I don't know that I would recommend it to most people starting out today. In fact, I probably wouldn't. I would probably recommend WordPress or something like, or, or well, probably WordPress, but uh, depending on your expertise. Um, but for me and my needs, uh, movable type is, uh, remains perfect. 
Now, I've been a Daring Fireball reader for as long back as I can remember. I don't know if I go all the way back to 2002 when you started, but was the idea, I know you said that the design of the template has, has stayed pretty constant, but was the idea for the format of Daring Fireball, and by format, I, I mean the news format, how you were going to do it, has that stayed pretty constant, you know, where you link and provide commentary and then do some longer form posts, or how has that changed, if at all, over the years? It changed a lot in... 2004. So the first two years, it's crazy. It's crazy to think about it. So in the first two years, all I had were what I now consider to be like feature articles. I don't really have an official name for them, but the full, full star ones. Yeah. The ones that show up in the feed with a star, that's all there was. And to keep that going and to keep the site as, you know, the more, you know, the only way you can gain traffic with a blog is to be relatively active. I, I mean, it's hard. I, I don't know what the magic formula is, but most sites that want to be serious about it, you know, update daily. I couldn't do that. I couldn't write a full thing daily. And I was, I wasn't making any money on it. I was making zero, zero dollars on it. I was supporting myself through freelance. Again, I went back to like freelance graphic design and website creation and stuff like that. So all I had were the feature length articles and it was going well and it was definitely gaining in popularity, which was great. And it was very, you know, felt great. And I felt like I was going somewhere. Um, but with, I knew that I, ultimately what I really wanted to do was make a, you know, full-time income from Daring Fireball because it felt like everything else I was doing was just to pay the bills. And every free moment I had, I was, you know, writing for Daring Fireball, but also reading for Daring Fireball, right? The only way you can do something like this is to consume an enormous amount of what other people are writing. Um, and that really took a lot out of, um, you know, my available time. And I just knew I, I really, you know, I just like, I could do a better job if this was my main thing and not something I was doing on nights and weekends. Um, and so in 2004, my first idea for making some money with the site, I think it was 2004, but um, the idea was that I would be like reader supported and I would charge, I printed up t-shirts and, um, and it was, you know, you buy a t-shirt for $29 or just buy a membership for $19, uh, which, you know, just a virtual membership without the t-shirt. And then I was like, but the only way that, you know, just asking people for money just to support me. Some people would sign up, but I was like, if you, if I give them something in return, I mean, it's basically the Kickstarter idea, it's sort of, which is you have to give people something in return for it and it'll motivate them to do it. And so I thought, well, what if I had, um, a f uh, one thing at the time was, uh, this, it's funny in hindsight, nobody really thinks about it anymore, but it was the idea of should your RSS feed contain the full articles or should just excerpts? And then if it just had excerpts that people would have to come to your website to, to see them. I thought, well, I'll, I'll give the full RSS feed, but only to the people who are members. And, and I thought the other thing I could do was start a, a link list style blog. And Jason Kotke was doing something like this at the time. And he'll dash, um, uh, Andy Bayo, but every, but most people were putting them over in the side of their site. Uh, like a, like the main column was like their big long blog posts. And then over in a second column was a little skinny column of smaller type with like their links. And I thought, cause there's so much stuff I want to link to that. I can't figure out how to work into an article. Like there's all sorts of stuff I want to bring to the attention of daring fireball readers, but I don't want to, I can't figure out how to put this in a full article. 
And every once in a while, if you look through my archives, you can see it. There's a few of them in it from 2002 to 2004. There's like a link roundup post where I just post to 10 random things, one sentence at a time, which clearly in today's Daring Fireball would be 10 separate link list items. And I thought, well, and I'll make that feed available, but only to members. And then I'll only post those to the website 24 hours later, something like that. Um, and it kind of worked in that enough people, uh, enough people signed up for t-shirts or bought t-shirts and signed up for these memberships that it, it, it made it, uh, a lucrative hobby, but it was nowhere near enough that I could support my family with the income, but it was like, well, that's a start. Yeah, I remember um, I used to have one of those magic links. I, I was a subscriber and had the RSS and net newswire, of course, back then that's what everybody used. Right. And it was great getting the full articles. But it was immediately frustrating to me because from a financial standpoint, it seemed to make sense that people charged people to get immediate access to those link list items. Uh, but it immediately became frustrated to me as the writer, not the business person, because I wanted everybody to see them right away. And it was frustrating to me, like if I would write something and make a certain point quickly and then it wasn't published for free for everybody till the next day. And if somebody else made that point in the meantime, I was like, you know, I said that first, but nobody, nobody knows it except for my members. Exactly. I, mean, I think when you monetize that way, you actually limit your influence because you're not getting out to a big audience like you used to. Yeah. Well, to. and there's ways around it. I mean, Ben Thompson's doing a great job of it today. I mean, Ben Thompson has, is, you know, is more or less doing what I thought I could do in 2004. He's doing it today with the, the daily update newsletter that he's charging money for. Um, part of what he makes his idea a lot smarter than mine is he's charging a lot more money um, than $19. In other words, charge few, you know, you're only going to get a few people to sign up anyway. It's better to charge them a lot of money than a little money. But also Ben has a much more focused audience. I mean, he's really looking at kind of um, finance and investors and things like that. At least that's my impression. Whereas yeah. you're, you're going to a much broader audience. Well, so and he also charge. He also does a great job of when he really nails it and really has a good one, he immediately makes that one up free for everybody so that people can link to it and stuff like that. Um, so there's ways to do it. But I think for what I wanted to do, it wasn't a good fit because his other thing, too, is having one big daily update is different than me wanting to post stuff throughout the day. Um, so uh, also in the middle of all this, uh, at some point. Google AdSense came out and I tried that. I was one of the first blogs to have Google AdSense and um, quickly, it only lasted a month. I took that down, but it, it's funny because the first post where I had it at the time, nobody had ads on a blog. And in fact, some people defined blogs as an ad free medium. And so when people would start tinkering with ads, they, uh, there was often a backlash from readers. And so anticipating that I wrote about it in a meta standpoint and, um, uh, I don't know how I got there. If you look at uh, one of my old columns, I think it was called Independence Day or something like that. I'll find the link for you and send it to you. But I started with this analogy about my time as a freelance graphic designer. And it, it, it ended up being, this is about me wanting to go independent with Daring Fireball and ads being my attempt to do it. But I talked about my days as, an, as a freelance graphic designer and that to do really good work, you have to charge your client a lot of money. And you tell your client, you know, here's how much it's going to cost for a website. And it might be three or four times what they expected it was going to cost. And then if they agree to it, though, what they what they think is, well, if I'm going to pay a lot of money, I want a lot of website. I want it to be big. I want lots of things. Whereas my, you know, I think it's pretty clear. My style of design is pretty minimal. And I it was always very frustrating to me where I would think my my honest and best advice to you 
is to do something very minimal. But you, if you're going to insist on me adding all this stuff, okay, you're the client. And I, I mentioned that there was an article I read years before and sometime in the 90s in the Philadelphia Daily News, where the Philadelphia Daily News had a, a feature story about why do men's hair pieces typically look so bad. So obviously like, whoa, that guy's wearing a hairpiece. And I went to a bunch of local Philadelphia hair, men's hair restoration places and uh, talked to them. And the gist of it was a really good hairpiece costs a lot of money. And you tell the client it costs a lot of money and they say, I want a lot of hair. <laughs> and that they said that really the be- the way you make a hairpiece look realistic and so nobody notices is you you make it look just so that you're a little less bald than you actually are. You know, like Bruce Willis on Moonlighting, who looked like he had a receding hairline uh, rather than a full head of hair. But in fact, was already, you know, was a lot more bald than he looked on the show. Uh, And I thought that's exactly the same as with graphic design. So somehow I opened my piece on why I'm adding ads to Daring Fireball with this anecdote. And that was the piece where I started with Google AdSense. Well, guess what? All of the AdSense ads were for men's hair restoration. (laughs) I, I'm still trying just to imagine Daring Fireball with Google AdSense on it, and I kind of want to see a screenshot. Uh, I've got it somewhere. You could change the colors to some degree, and I, you know, it looked okay, yeah. but I couldn't change the fonts, and that really bothered me. Um, yeah. Now, so what happened is it turns out men's hair restoration ads circa 2004 or whenever this was um, were very high cost per click, like a dollar per click. And what and I, one of the rules of AdSense to this day, of course, is that you cannot tell your readers, "Please click these ads to make me money." So I never did that. Never said, "Please click them." I just said, "Please understand. Here's why I'm adding them." But more than enough readers of Daring Fireball, you know, were were sympathetic to the cause, wanted me to succeed, and they thought, "Hey, I'll give them a click," and they clicked the ads. And so, like in the first like three or four days, I made a lot of money. I made like I don't know, I'm off the top of my head, maybe like a thousand, fifteen hundred dollars, sixteen hundred dollars. Um. Because it was these high cost per click men's hair restoration ads. And then once the ads settled down and kind of they were giving me the ads that were a little, you know, more like what they should have been serving me all along, it, it trickled down to, you know, a dollar a day or something like that. Not, you know, nothing. to. But I felt terrible about the money I did make because I thought this was an honest, this was not an honest way to make money. The, the people who were honestly paying the men's hair restoration service place providers, they they weren't getting value for the money with these ads. My, that's not my audience. That's not why people were clicking it. People were clicking it just to do me a favor. So I was like, this doesn't work for, for their advertisers. That was bad, you know, a bad spend on their part. It doesn't work for Google because their idea that the stuff is targeted, that was actually mistargeted because of this silly analogy I made. And it's not good for my readers because they weren't getting ads that were actually of interest to them. And so it, it, you know, graphic design and appearance issues aside, it, it didn't take me long to take those ads down. And, and then and eventually you're, you're, you're one of the first guys that really, I, I feel like you've taught so much to us in the blogging community. Like you were the guy who I first read said, I'm not going to do this crazy game or I'm going to write crazy posts to get people to click on things. Uh, I'm going to write something that's of my opinion and your advertising model is not tied at all to clicks. Yeah. Right? And it's always, I've always thought, I'll geek out, but it's to me, it's always been like Yoda's advice on the dark side of the force. Like it's now you talk in this language, right? To me, it it's, it's a type of thing where you don't want to even tip your toes in. It's, it's a corrupting influence and you just, you have to avoid, you know, all of it. Um, because once you start down that path, it inexorably leads to 
bad decisions that aren't in the interest of your publication's brand and appearance, and it's certainly not in the interest of your readers. Uh, so I've never, I believe, yeah, I mean, the closest I've come would be the AdSense, which was cost per click, but I've never taken page view, you know, I've never taken any advertising that paid by the page view. Um, and I'll try to wrap this up quickly, but the irony, and I covered this in my talk at XOXO last year, but the irony is the, the, um, the RSS paying for memberships to read the RSS feed was working somewhat. It wasn't really getting me to the point where I could viably support my family full time. And, and by 2005, 2006, I'd taken, I guess this was my last full-time jobs. I was, I was working at a startup called Joyant. We were working on a suite of web apps for email contacts, addresses, but more or less, you know, all that type of stuff in the cloud. Uh, I remember those guys. It was a good <laughs> idea. Well, they're still there. around, yeah. but now they're like a web hosting company, uh, not like a high-end web hosting company, like a cloud service provider. It wasn't a bad idea. Like the idea, you know, I think we were onto a very good idea that, that that sort of stuff should be all be hosted in the cloud. Um, but anyway, it was uh, doing that full time, still writing Daring Fireball on the side. And and that was a good one because I'd gotten the joint job because of Daring Fireball. The guy, Dave Young, who started Joint, asked me if I'd be interested in taking the job because he was a Daring Fireball reader. So the fact that I was doing Daring Fireball was not like any kind of problem. That was, you know, why I got the gig. Um, but what happened is that I was doing this thing and I had these little tokens in the URL that instead of a password protection, everybody got a unique URL to read their feeds. And what happened is so many feed readers were designed such that it was the assumed that URLs were public, that people could search for them. And so like, you know, more or less the equivalent of software piracy, you know, the, how many non-members were using the members only feed. It wasn't even just dishonest people. It wasn't just people who were trying to get around my full feed paywall. It was people who just honestly just searched for Daring Fireball on certain online feed readers, saw a URL, clicked it, subscribed to it. And, you know, the fact that it was the full content, they didn't even know they weren't supposed to be seeing the full content. Right. Do you, you know what I mean? It was like just right. it seemed yeah. totally honest to them. But in fact, you know, I would look and I had these stats that I'd written myself and certain of the feeds would have, you know, one feed, which was supposed to be for one person would have 577 subscribers or something like that. So I switched to password authentication. You had to use your email address and a password to read the feeds. And that Newswire worked great with that. And a few other Mac apps work great with that. But the web based ones didn't because they were based on uh you know, they were just based on the idea that most feeds were free. And the big gorilla in the room was uh, Google Reader. And Google Reader didn't support passwords. And I th always thought, well, eventually they will. It's just because Google Reader's new. But more and more people were using Google Reader or switching to Google Reader or even just using Mac apps that use Google Reader as the syncing engine, you know, for keeping two Macs in sync with the feeds that you've read. And then I realized, I st took a step back and realized, wait, look at this from Google's perspective. The way Google does everything is at scale. And so Google wants to read my feed once. And if I have 10,000 subscribers, they read my feed once and then they give the update to all 10,000 subscribers. That, that Google doesn't want each of 10,000 subscribers to have a unique URL and password and check it 10,000 times. Right. And because Google wouldn't know whether that was something like that they were all getting the same content, which they were in my case, or whether it was like their banking website where the RSS feed would be unique to each person. 
and I realized there's no way Google is ever going to add password authentication. And so the dilemma was clear to me, Google's never going to add password authentication. I need password authentication if, if, if members only feeds are going to be a selling point and I want my readers to be happy. And I thought, how do I square this circle? This is, this seems impossible. And then I just took a step back and I thought, wait, what if I think of some other way to monetize full content RSS feeds? And I came up with, well, how about once a week I sell a sponsorship? And lo and behold, you know, here we are nine years later, I've sold out every single week since then. And the rates have done nothing but go up. And you've outlived Google Reader. Right. So <laughs> Google Reader is the is the reason I came up with the first business model that truly made Daring Fireball a full-time endeavor for me. I can thank Google Reader, and Google Reader is no longer even with us. But I really respect the way you do it. I mean, I, you know, and I've, I've copied you with Max Barkey. I do the same thing. I mean, a lot of us, uh, I just, just the idea of not making it, you know, get paid per click. And you were the leader in that. As far as I know, you're the first person I ever heard. I, I don't consider that copying there. And it's funny too. Anything yeah. you do originally, anything you do, if you, if you do something first, the second person to do it, it looks like a copy and the third person maybe too. But then by the fourth person, it's, it's just a genre. Really? I mean, it's, it's absolutely to me, not copying. And it's gratifying to me that other people have made the same model work. I love it. It's, it's, you know, it's just gratifying to me, but I don't consider it copying. While we're on the topic of, of daring fireball, obviously in order to make this work, you've got to stay on a top of a lot of news. I mean, there, there's a whole wide array of subject matters that you've got to cover. Some of it's just stuff that's personally interesting to you. I know, I know you cover a lot of baseball and a lot of sports type stuff, uh, that's that's personally interesting to use, but then there's a whole wide array of of Apple news that you cover, uh, and and you find, I mean, you don't just link to the stories that everybody's linking to. You don't just comment on those stories, but you find a lot of stories that other people don't. How do you stay on top of those those things and and get to them first? That's a great question, and I wish that I had a better answer because I feel like if I had a system, I would feel a lot less anxiety that someday I'm going to lose it. <laughs> like I do, like it's a source of anxiety to me that I don't really have a system or a great answer to that question that to me could prove that I can keep doing this. It's, uh, it is a total gut feeling that when I, my eyes encounter something, I think, Oh, that should be on daring fireball. Uh, and it's changed over the years. Twitter has changed it tremendously. So I get, I, I read all of my at replies on Twitter and a lot of the stuff I link to comes through there where just Joe random reader, um, you know, sends me an at reply like, Hey, have you seen this? And a lot of times it's stuff that I have not seen and it's not on tech meme. It's not percolated to the top of everybody else's sites. And I read it and I think that's great. Or sometimes it's even people who, and, and I think that they're often shy about it. It's, you know, intimidating, but they'll be like, Hey, I wrote a thing and you know, here, do you want to read it? Um, and they either email me that or, or they at reply me on Twitter. The truth of it is, is um, I do read all of my at replies on Twitter. I don't read all of my email from that comes in over the transom. It's, it's too much and too involved. Um, you know, it's, it's so much easier to keep up with Twitter. I mean, and I do, I get a lot of replies if you just search for my name. I mean, I, I don't know, I guess a couple hundred a day, but the fact that I can read them, I don't ever have to click to go into them, right? You can read your Twitter stream just by scrolling and, 
That's so unbelievably efficient to me. Like anybody out there who just wants to randomly get my attention, you're much better off with the at Gruber. And then you've got, you know, well, what's left after that? 133 characters, 132 characters. Um, if you can fit it in 132 characters after an at Gruber, you have a much better chance of getting it to my attention than sending me an email. Um, but you, I do you re- realize I, you're going to get so many at replies after this, right? Uh, I don't see how it could get any worse. Okay. <laughs> or not, not, I don't even say worse. It's actually like, to me, it's actually like the ideal way to interact with the public when you're in a situation like I am where it's vastly disproportionate, right? I can't know everybody who knows me. Like my audience is bigger than the number of people I could ever possibly get to know. Um, and having that limit of 140 characters, I know that that's not why Twitter was invented. I know that at replies weren't even there at the beginning, but it turns out to be a tremendous way to keep up with what lots and lots of people are trying to communicate to me just because I can read it entirely by scanning with my eyes and scrolling rather than clicking and going into it. Like no matter how brief your email, it's unlikely that I can read the whole thing just in the, in the, the, the middle column of mail. Like I'm going to have to click it and go in. Um, so I get a lot of stuff from that. I have some regulars, some people who, um, just a handful of good friends who are excellent at surfacing links who just email them to me. Um, and then there's RSS, but it pretty much goes in that order. I would say the order goes my Twitter at replies, um, uh, email from people who I know, regular people. Third would be RSS. And then fourth would be the public emails that I just get from, you know, unknown random, but, but I'm delighted that you read my stuff. Readers of daring fireball. And then, you know, how I decide which ones make it and which ones don't, it, it really is just a gut reaction. One of the one of the challenges with email, I always feel like, is you get, you know, someone like the president obviously is not going to read and reply to every email he gets. And then there's somebody who doesn't have any public persona at all, and they're probably able to read and reply. But then there's all the people in the middle. And I think Twitter's a really sane way to try and say, okay, well, if you get me on Twitter, I'm much more likely to get it. That, that makes sense to me. Yeah. I, I actually want to talk. And, you know, one of the things you did when you started tearing fireballs, um, something for which I am eternally grateful is that you decided to come up with a better way to write for the web called Markdown. And, uh, you know, I can't believe we're like an hour in. We haven't talked about it yet, but I want to talk about that. And I know you do like a lot of scripting and stuff as well, which is kind of interesting to me. And I think a lot of our listeners. So there's some more stuff I want to talk about. I want to get into the nitty gritty a little bit. But before we do that, let's just take a minute and, uh, and talk about our exclusive sponsor, 1Password again. And Katie talked earlier about how important it is for you to create custom and unique passwords. And that really goes a long way to protecting your security. But, you know, there's two people to to that dance and the people on the other side are the people that you give those passwords to. And when you go to a website and you create a password and give them your information, there's a trust that you have with them that they are going to protect and secure those passwords that you're giving them. And unfortunately, not everybody is as good at protecting those passwords as you'd like. And that's why 1Password has this additional service when you buy 1Password. It's in the Mac app. It's called Watchtower. And I think this is just brilliant. So let's say you've got all your passwords set up right, but, you know, whatever, you know, company X has a security breach and their passwords get compromised. And you may not know that because sometimes company X does a pretty good job of keeping that secret or keeping it on the down low. 
Uh, but one password is always watching and they're always keeping track of these things and watchtower will tell you so it's an optional service built into one password it monitors the latest security vulnerabilities from around the web and it, then it gives you an alert when your own accounts are in danger so if company x has a um, security breach and the passwords have been compromised when you go into one password there's going to be this bright red banner over company x's password on your website and that's the way it's going to tell you that you need to audit that password because there's been some kind of security breach and it'll, it'll even give you the details. They can, you can click on it. It'll tell you about it, but more importantly, it'll prompt you to set up a new password with that company and just kind of fix things up because you may have great passwords, but if there's three or four people you're dealing with out there that haven't protected them, you have vulnerabilities you don't know about. And it's just such an amazing feature. I, when they announced it, I was like, this is so obvious. How come nobody thought of this before? And, you know, the guys at 1Password, they spend a lot of time thinking about protecting your security. And Watchtower is something you absolutely need to do. So to turn it on, if you've already got 1Password, uh, go under Security Audit and then click enable for watchtower that's all you have to do and then it's going to not only watch out for you it's going to watch out for the people you're dealing with and it's just an amazing little feature one of many they've got in this application if you haven't got it yet like we said earlier go over to onepassword.com and check it out um they also have a link for us don't they katie yeah just click the link in the show notes and you'll get a little bit of a discount when you buy one password yeah. yeah exactly and and let them know you heard about it from us uh i'm just always impressed by these guys they work so hard i saw them again at wwdc last week and they were up all night working on the the latest and greatest version of the application uh, great people great software and it will really provide you protection with things like watchtower so thanks one password for all the support of the show so so john those um, are great guys you just have to say i just have to say i have yeah. to interrupt and just say what great guys they are and what an what an amazing example of if you're just focused on one thing which is helping Mac users and Apple customers because they do yeah. great iOS, helping Apple customers manage passwords. That's it. And then you think like years ago, well, how is, you know, they got to have something else eventually, but they can just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper by focusing on that. Like the watchtower thing is an example of like a feature that like, it only makes sense after they've put like four or five, six years into the foundation of their, their whole thing. It's it, yeah, it, it's really just a great company. And that's an and amazing feature. Yeah, and it's rock solid. And the, the guys there, like, I mean, their own security is just kind of amazing. But yeah. anyway, I it, the, it's, it's an easy ad to give because yeah. uh, I use the product every day. Yeah, really good people, but too. The um, But now when you're running, so you've, you've built this, this really great website and you have such a great voice. But you're also a nerd. And I want to talk a little bit about that. So as you're writing the website, now you're using Mars Edit uh, mainly to, to, to post. But you weren't happy writing in HTML. So what did you do? Well, Mars Edit, <laughs> I'm trying to remember when Mars Edit started. It might be, it, it probably wasn't there at the time. I probably had to go through the, I think at that time, 2002, 2003, I still had to go through the web app, you know, the movable type web app. And the way I posted was always to make my posts in BB edit on my Mac, keeping them as a file that was saved in local, you know, cause there was the whole thing where if you typed into, and I know there's solutions to this now, but at the time, if you were typing in a, a web form in a web browser and something happened, you know, your browser crashed or you closed the window accidentally or something like that, you lost what you were typing. And so I, I you know, that happened to me once. 
once. And then yeah, after that, got that story, yeah. after that, I typed everything in BB edit and all, and then would select all copy, go to the web form paste. And even when I made corrections, I would make them in BB edit, select all copy paste and put them in. And that got to be a little old, but I was still doing it. But what happened was I knew HTML. I knew HTML like the back of my hand. I mean, I worked at Barebone software. I mean, I was a web developer. I knew programming, but then working at, 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 Barebones, bare bones, you know, BB Edit is a fantastic tool for people who really care about the, the the markup itself. Like if you're the type of web designer who cares that when people do a view source that your source code actually looks good. I was one of those type of web developers. You know, all my tags were nicely indented hierarchically. Uh, my code wasn't just valid HTML. It was good looking valid HTML. So I had no problem writing in, you know, the, the, the way I wrote posts for the first year or two and or first year or so in, in, in Daring Fireball was the posts were in native, you know, they were just HTML and, you know, snippets, not whole documents, but starting with, you know, P tags and H tags. Um, and I had no problem with that technically, but I eventually it just got, grew tiresome and it just felt like I was making work for myself. And I really thought that it made it hard to proofread my work. And so what I was doing for all of my proofreading was previewing in, uh, you know, either a browser or BB edits built in HTML rendering thing and previewing it there. But then the thing I'm reading, which is previewed and hides all of the cruft of the HTML markup, then that's not the thing that we're, if I see a typo to make, then I've got to switch to the other window and find where it is in that window, the source code window and fix it there. Uh, and I thought there has to be a better way. And movable type had a thing called, um, I forget what it was called, convert line breaks. And so that was, you could choose, you know, like, what is your post formatted in? Is it raw HTML where and movable type, whatever you type in code, movable type just puts into your template and where, you know, where you say article goes here, the article goes there. Convert line breaks was a way that you didn't have to use the P tags. So you could just hit return, return and have a blank line between things and omit the P tags and movable type would put the P tags in. And I didn't, I never wanted to use that because I thought, well, uh, I'm not in complete control over what the markup is. And it's, it's just the P tags. Like why do that? And I thought, well, why not? You know, I, I felt like there's like five or six things, you know, italics, links, uh, headers, you know, a couple of things. And I thought, well, you, you there's ought to be an automatic way to convert all these things. And that's what got me thinking about Markdown and uh, my friend Dean Allen, who wrote uh, the now uh, gone, but not forgotten textile or not uh, textism website. He invented a format called textile, which was sort of the same basic idea, but was more like, um, like the markup you use for man pages. Um, and it was, you know, more or less of, you know, like Markdown, like something you type in plain text and it was a lot less typing and looked a little better. And then you converted it to HTML on the fly. And there were other formats out there, too. Um, none of them that really were right to me. And the the key insight to me was I wanted something. The, the primary driver for, for Markdown is I wanted something that was easy to write, but not necessarily super easy. It didn't, you know, couldn't, doesn't have to be that easy. but um, and to me, super easy would be something that was truly WYSIWYG, you know, like writing in, in uh, Microsoft Word or Pages, I guess, didn't exist at the time, but something like that. But I, thought, I want it to be plain text. I want it to be relatively easy to write. But the main thing I wanted was for it to be easy to read 
so that once you've written it, you can just look at your own thing that you've written and it reads completely naturally, not like you're reading something that was written in code or in, in markup, some kind of markup language. And for me and Katie and I have done actually shows on Markdown in the past, um, but the um, David wrote a book on Markdown. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but the um, but the thing for me, because it really what really talked to me, like you were talking about earlier, how you take your um, what was it? Your Mac write files to your editor right. in college. It's like, can you open those files today? I mean, can you get to them? Yeah, um, it's very difficult. And I feel like, you know, the words that we write are very precious and. And writing in plain text for me always made sense, but it had no formatting and it would, you know, it really was very limiting. And I found Markdown. I'm like, yes, this is it. And, and it just seems like such a natural, but I'm, I'm not, I wasn't your target audience for this. In fact, I'm not sure you even had an audience. I think this is one thing you may have just done for yourself. Yeah. But, but the, um, but you never expected someone to be writing legal briefs with Markdown. You thought it was something to write for the web. I mean, did you have any idea how big this was going to get when you did it? I sort of did. Uh, well, I I was very excited about it, and I asked a few people, a few friends, um, and it, it's it's at some point I want to write about the early days of it in history, but it's going to be difficult because the 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 person who was most instrumental in helping me was Aaron Swartz, young Aaron Swartz, who had you know a few years ago um, committed suicide tragedy. Yeah, uh, and he was terrible. super gifted and gifted in so many ways. But one of the things that he had done as a teenager still is he had written something. Uh, and again, one of these things that was sort of like Markdown, his was called ATX. I don't even know where the hell that name came from. Um, uh, but because he had written ATX and he, I knew he was a fan of Daring Fireball. We'd exchanged emails about, you know, Mac related stuff over the years. He was one of the people I pinged to be like a beta tester for Markdown and said, here's what I'm thinking about. Here's a few of the ideas I took from ATX. Here's why I think ATX, here's all the problems I saw with ATX. And here's why I think this might be better. Uh, and it's been misreported over the years. Like I know the Wikipedia entry for Markdown, it's for a long time, for years attributed that said that Markdown was created by John Gruber and Aaron Swartz. And that's, that's not accurate. It was created by me. It's my thing. Aaron though was instrumental. He was like my muse. I don't know how else to describe it. And he was the first person who got it. That's the best way I would describe it. Is there were other people who, who I wrote to and they were like, oh, that seems interesting. But I could see their eyes rolling in their back of their heads. And the reaction they had was probably the reaction I would have had. And it was what I had when I saw Dean Allen's textile is, oh, that's clever, but I'll just stick to what I know, which is writing raw HTML. I'll just keep writing raw HTML because I know that that'll work. And why put something in front of that rather than write the direct thing? And so most people I pinged were like... Um, I could just tell they were like, that's cool. And they didn't want to say anything to me to hurt my feelings or whatever, but I could see that they weren't going to use it. They weren't going to, they weren't going to try it. And the thing with Aaron was he, he wanted something like this. That's why he wrote ATX and he could, he instantly saw why Markdown was better. He saw that the, the errors that he had made with ATX uh, and he got it. That's the best way I can put it is very early on. Aaron got it. And that meant was I kept making minor changes to the syntax, just I think for a long stretch, probably was it early 2004? Uh, I think probably early 2004, late 2003, early 2004, while I was developing it, um, I would say, hey, I've changed the syntax for whatever, you know, what used to be this, it's this. Um, and what I was doing at the time 
was I was, I was posting, I was creating all of my posts in Daring Fireball in Markdown. And what happened, here's one of the things that made it happen is, is movable type added a plugin system. And one of the plugin hooks was that you could add your own custom text filters. So when I created a new post, I could say this post is formatted or filtered if you want, I don't know what they call it in Markdown. And so instead of interpreting it as HTML, I didn't have to like do the translation myself and paste the resulting HTML in. I could just post the the markdown and the translation to HTML would happen when I hit the publish button. And one of the things that made that possible was that Perl was the language I was writing markdown in and Perl was the language of, and still is the language of movable type in their plugins. Um, so what I was doing was to make it, to, to test it, I'd think this is it. And I would write my next article in markdown and, and then I'd get annoyed by something and I think I should change that. And then every time I made one of those changes, the annoyance was if I would, once I decided, yes, I should change that, then I would have to go back and change the last like two months of daring fireball posts in my system to update to this changed syntax. So there's like, I don't know, at least three or four months worth of daring fireball posts around late 2003 to 2004, where I had to edit each one by hand each time when I would change the syntax for linking or, or something like that. But it was worth it because it, it was the only way, like actually testing it live and writing real articles, not little example snippets or something like that, but actually using it to write during Fireball was how we ironed out the kinks, uh, you know, to, to, to get it to what it was when I announced the 1.0. So when and I did, I when I did, I thought, I thought this is super cool. I, and this is so much better. I was already so much happier as a writer. I was like, this has made me so happy as a writer. And I thought, this is how I'm going to write for the rest of my life. Uh, and Aaron was equally excited. Aaron really, really was excited. And I think that's how the misattribution happened. So Aaron got in contact. And one of the ways that it, it got the most publicity right off the bat, right on day one, Aaron went to Boing Boing and he knew uh, Corey uh What's his name at Boing Boing? Corey, uh, was it Doctorow? Yeah, Corey Doctorow. Uh, yeah. And said, hey, I've been working with John Gruber on this thing that he created. It's called Markdown. I think it's going to be awesome. And the Boing Boing article on day one, I think misinterpreted. I, I, I know Aaron. I knew Aaron well enough. I know Aaron didn't take credit. I think, though, that his enthusiasm and the sort of I've been working with him on this gave like Boing Boing sort of attributed it to him and me. And then I think the Wikipedia thing came from the Boing Boing thing. But I, I didn't really care. I wasn't, you know, it's, 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 it, it feels silly. And now that Aaron's gone, it feels even more, uh, I don't know, gauche to, to yeah. quibble over that. Cause that's not the, you know, my biggest concern, but I really thought, and Aaron really thought this is going to take off like wildfire and it didn't, it, it, there were some people who got it, but it was a very, very slow burn. And it was a little depressing to me at first. Cause I thought, man, I just know that this is great. And Aaron thought it was great. And then it was just sort of like everybody was like interesting and then nobody really did anything with it. Nobody really took off. It took years. And then years later, it really started to gain in popularity slowly but surely. Um, but th it did not explode. And I thought it would and it didn't. But now it's like where we are today where it's like, I mean, just last week at WWDC, Apple announced that that there's markdown style formatting in the comments for Swift, the new their new programming language in, in this when you do the the playgrounds, when you program the little play, playground things in Swift, you can put Markdown in your comments and they show up in the rendered output. It's amazing. It, that, was, that was the next time I've got it open on my screen. And I was thinking, 
How does that feel for you to know that something you created is part of the Apple development stack now? That's got to be great. Uh, uh, it's it, it's super gratifying. So there were two big things for me last week at WWD. Well, three if you count the Schiller thing. But on the keynote, they they included during Fireball in the the news Apple News thing, which I did not know about, and that was sort of a wow, like, you know, made me sit up a little straighter in my seat out in the keynote hall. But then there's the playgrounds thing with, with Markdown that the, the Markdown making it into Swift playgrounds is way more gratifying to me than, than daring fireball being in news because that I feel a little ambivalent about. I feel like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's cool, but I don't know. It feels like a blurring of the, you know, people, I, I worry that people suspect that it means that I'm somehow in in cahoots with apple i don't know like i like the yeah. idea of daring fireball being stridently independent and i worry i, about I think i have a different take on that I, I think it's that you know you're those people at w those are your people at wwc those are yeah. the biggest daring fireball fans and and apple knows that and uh i also just love the fact that they put a blog on the same level as you know more traditional publications yeah i like and, that uh, too i don't want to look at gift horse in the mouth i like that too but i do but i guess the way to think about it is there's there's marketing implications for their decision to choose my site as the blog that they highlighted in the news thing whereas the markdown making it into swift playgrounds is simply and truly because they thought it was a cool thing Right. There's no marketing yeah. angle there. That's just, yeah, that's true. they just thought that would be cool. And so that's why it's more gratifying to me is it's simply because they thought it was cool and it is mind blowing to me. And that's the thing about Markdown that it doesn't surprise me or it doesn't shock me, but it constantly surprises me is the way that people keep thinking of new contexts to use it within. I certainly never thought of it as anything other than something I would use to write daring fireball. Um, and I thought other people who write blogs could use it and that would be great, but people use it. I mean, the fact that somebody's using it to decorate, uh, the comments in a programming language never occurred to me, but it's awesome that they are. And I think the fact that it's in some ways rather loosely defined, uh, is what enables these original con contexts to be used for it. And I told you this on your show, but I feel like one of the reasons why it's so big now is because we needed something like Markdown as iOS took off, and we wanted a simple text format to move text between iOS and Mac and the web and all the other platforms that are out there now. And it just seems like custom tailored for that, even though that problem didn't exist when you designed it. Yeah, no, it definitely didn't exist because the iPhone was years away. I mean, the other thing I've heard, and, I, and it's true for me too, it's why I like to, I still like to write in BB Edit, and when I write in Mars Edit, I write longer pieces in BB Edit still. But even in Mars Edit, Mars Edit is, I have Mars Edit set up. It's just plain text, right? It's just monospaced font, plain text. That to me, that's the way, I, and if other people write in different ways, whatever works for you, writing is a weird thing to do. But for me, writing in a plain text font is a way to focus simply on what you're writing. And so you're never tempted to screw around with your margins or your line heights or your fonts and stuff like that. It's just, you know you're just typing like you're typing on a magical typewriter that you can backspace and delete and select text in. Now, what about yeah. for these longer form pieces that you have, you know, when you do 
the review for the Apple Watch or, you know, for, for the, let's just say the new iPhone or iPad or something, you know, that's coming out where, where you really do these, these longer form pieces. Do you change your workflow at all for that? Cause I'm, I'm guessing you're probably referencing notes or, you know, think that's not something that you sit down and do just in, in one sitting, I would imagine. No, usually, but it's not a complex system. Anything that I know is going to be long, I start in a BB edit document and I don't, you know, have any kind of complicated um, file system for it. I, I have, you know, just, I actually just call it soup. Remember the Newton soup where it was just, you didn't have to worry about where you were saving stuff on the Newton. So it's like in my Dropbox folder, it's like, I have a folder called soup and it just has hundreds and hundreds of text files in it. And every once in a while, like once a year or so, I'll just take the, you know, make a new folder with a year name and take all the ones from that year and drop them in there. Um, but I just save a new file in there with the, you know, a working title for the article and, you know, it's synced to all my machines. Uh, and I just, uh, you know, it's my notes are at the bottom and the article is at the top. And so at the beginning, if I'm just collecting notes and URLs, I just paste them in as they go. And then when I want to start writing, I just hit a couple of returns at the top and just start writing. And then I know that any notes I have or any kind of organization, I just scroll down to the bottom and look for them there. And that's it. There is no other. And then I just keep going until I feel like I'm done and then, you know, copy and paste it into Mars edit. But there's no, no great story behind it. Yeah. No, no outlining or no grabbing clippings or anything like that. You just throw your notes into a plain text document and BB edit and, and then type it. Yeah. And if there's a URL there, usually the URL is enough. You know, most URLs, I can just look at the URL and remember, you know, you looking at it reminds me what it is and why I put it there. Um, some rough outlining, but outlining in, you know, in the style of Markdown where it's, you know, a couple, if I know that I want to have like three sections, I'll just make like three H2 headers and, you know, right. start with something like that. I like that. It's not fidgety. No, not fidgety at all. It's just, just one big thing. It. Right. And then I know where it is. It's in, it's everything I want to do with it is in there, you know, and then there's other things that are, you know, well, I, I, I'm not that organized. So I, I do carry around a field notes notebook wherever I go and in my back right pocket. And so every once in a while I'll come up with an idea and I'll put it in there. Um, and I, every, what I do is just every day or two, I just turn the page in the notebook, put the date at the top. Um, and so every once in a while, if I have the nagging notion that I think this might drive the, the getting things done, people nuts is I'm never a hundred percent sure where anything is, but I know it's in one of three places. It's either in, uh, that BB edit document for the long, the long article, it's either within the last three or four pages of my current field notes notebook, or it's in Vesper on my iPhone. And so every once in a while I'll think like, where is that? Where is that URL I had to the thing from somebody who I've never heard of before, but it's perfect for this piece. And it's not in the BB edit document and it's, uh, not in my notebook. And I think, Oh, it must be in Vesper. And I look in Vesper and there it is. But I know it's in now, one of you, those three places. Do you transfer the stuff out of your notebook into your digital storage or do you just keep it in the notebook? No, most of it, most of it doesn't come out of the notebook. But then if it's something, if it's, if it's truly gold, then I do. If I think that's something I know that I want to search for, you know, in perpetuity, then I, I'll take it out and put it somewhere where it, you know, it's digital and, and propagates to the cloud and backups and stuff like that. Yeah, that, that would drive me nuts. <laughs> you know, one question I, when you were talking earlier about, it, you say you use a, your monotype font. Yes. I know people are going to ask what, what, what's the font? Uh, 
Well, so for years and years and years, I was a Monaco nine, uh, man bitmapped. Of course, the original Mac bitmap font Monaco nine, uh, no anti-aliasing. And then I got a little older and I found it to be a little too small. Uh, so at some point, maybe around 10 years ago or so, I switched to Monaco 10 point, which sounds like a very minor change, but in my opinion was actually like the difference between using nine pixels for that font and 10 really opened up the X height of that font. Um, and so I used that all the way up until, um, the last, uh, non-retina Mac that I had, which was a MacBook Air I was using until late last summer. But every retina machine I have, I use uh, Consolas. Have you, yeah, that's you, a good font. Yeah, that's a Microsoft font, and uh, it's a really good monospace font. And BBEdit, in fact, I have the I have a legitimately licensed version from Microsoft, but BBEdit, in fact, ships with a licensed version uh, called Consolas for BBEdit. So anybody who uses BBEdit or I think Text Wrangler gets a free version of Consolas that's you know available for use within BBEdit and and Text Wrangler itself. But yeah. it, to me, it, but anti-aliased, and it is anti-aliased, and it's only on my Retina Max. Nate. Hey. It sounds like most of of what you do is is on your Mac, and I, I know I've heard you talk about that before. That you do most of your writing on your Mac. Does any of this translate over to iOS? I know the Dropbox folder obviously can translate over to iOS, but when when you travel, do you do you take your Mac with you? Do you do any of your writing on on iOS, whether it be an iPhone or an iPad, when you're on the go? Uh I do, but not much and almost never on an iPad. iPad to me, I, and again, I've been a big proponent of not viewing the iPad as a consumption only device right from the get go. But for me personally, it is. And to me, that's, that's the way that you, you know, let's be adults and realize that we ourselves are not representative of everybody. And I'm pretty, you know, I feel like I've done a good job of that with the iPad, that the way I use the iPad and the way maybe I think the mistake a lot of other technically oriented people do is they don't use their iPad for the writing and stuff like that. And then they, they draw from that. Well, iPad isn't good for that. When I disagree, I think it's great for that. And I, you know, people like Federico Vedici, you know, he does amazing work on his iPad. I don't though. Anything long I do on my Mac. Um, I do post from my iPhone though. And that's through the, the CGI interface to movable type. So like when I'm on vacation or traveling or something like that, I have bookmarklets. Um, so if I'm on a web page in mobile Safari and I want to link to it from Daring Fireball, I can hit a bookmarklet and it opens up a um, my posting form in the web version of movable type with a very nicely formatted for the iPhone version of movable type. Uh, and it, populates the URL, you know, like my titles link to the destination URL, all of that is already set up from the bookmarklet. And then I just have to write my own headline and uh, my own post. And so I do so it's all, all done on the web. Yeah. All not, done on the not web. An app. Yeah. Okay. And if I, if it starts to get a little bit long, it, it, you know, usually my link list ones are pretty short and I try to keep them short. If I'm worried that it's starting to get a little long and I want to write a little bit more, I'll do a select all copy and paste and go to Vesper and do it there just to be sure that, you know, that I'm not going to lose it. I'm not going to lose the post. But for the most part, I just do that right on the web. And and what role does your iOS stuff play in like your news collection and, you know, research for your site? That is where I, I truly use and depend upon it. Um, and what I do 
is uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Pinboard. That's the uh, um, you know the delicious like bookmarking site. I'm sure you guys have heard of it. Sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Pin, we talked pin, about pin, it. Pinboard dot in. Uh, really simple. It's just focused. You know, here's where you send links. So I have um, used to be bookmarklets, but then I got the Tapbox guys to add it as a read later service. It's not really a read later service, but it works the same way. So any kind of link in. Um, as I'm using Tweetbot on my Mac, if I want to save it for later, uh, I can just do a long press on it and a thing comes up, save to Pinboard, and there it goes. And then in the meantime, there's also a, um, uh, uh, starting last year with iOS 8 and the extensions, there's uh, uh, a couple of apps for Pinboard, but then they add the extension. So it's in any system-wide sh- sharing sheet. Anytime I'm on iOS and there's a URL I want to save for later, uh, I could just save it to Pinboard from the sharing sheet. So anything that I'm collecting and that I might want to link to later, I don't want to do it now because I'm on the phone and it's you know a little too fiddly to do it all typing on my thumbs. I'll just save it to Pinboard, and then when I'm at my Mac and I know that there's you know a bunch of stuff I might want to link to, I just open up Pinboard and I can just I just visually scan you know the last you know day or so of links. And it's funny because sometimes I'll think you know what I. That's not interesting to me anymore. Sometimes letting it sit for a few hours really lets it settle in whether it was worth linking to or not. Um, and other times it's like, oh, yeah, I can't believe I didn't link to that yet. Quick, you know, but there it is right there in the top of my links and pinboard, and I, I can, you know, link to it from there. But a lot of times I've saved it from iOS, but I don't post it until I'm back at my Mac. Now, why did you choose pinboard over like um, Instapaper, Pocket, Reading List, all the other options for the same kind of thing? Uh, I used to use Instapaper a lot and I don't anymore. But the reason that I sort of settled on Pinboard is that when I used Instapaper more, I really used Instapaper specifically for stuff I wanted to read later that I hadn't read the whole thing and I wanted to read it in Instapaper in the Instapaper format and just using it as sort of a, um, a very sloppy stack of anything I might want to link to later, really it screwed up my Instapaper queue. Like my Instapaper queue, I was very, very closely curated of stuff that I really wanted to read later. Whereas my pinboard queue is uh, just a heap. Okay. That makes sense. Now, do you still do that with Instapaper? Or uh, you still use- I guess I should say yes, but it's, I, I use Instapaper. I don't know why, I don't know why this is, but I use it less and less than I, that, as I used to. I don't, I don't find myself using it that much anymore. Maybe it's because all those retina devices, now it's kind of easy to read it. It's easier to read it on the original page than it used to be. Yeah. And the other thing too, is I think maybe Safari reader view it, for the pages that don't render well, you know, it, it, yeah. it it's good enough for me. The, um, now I know that you, and occasionally on your website, you'll, and these, I love these posts when you do it, you'll like disclose an Apple script or something that you've developed to, um, kind of customize or make your job easier. Um, how much of that stuff do you do? I don't do as much as I used to. And I've thinking about it in a run up to doing the show with you two. I, I don't do as much as I used to. And I don't know if that's just because, uh, it's, it, I'm older and a little, I don't know, lazier. And I don't know if maybe my sort of hacking, programming, scripting muscles have atrophied a little, or if it's just that I've already written most of the ones that I need. And so there's no need for it. There are a few that itch that, that I have an itch for that I've always thought about writing and I still haven't, but not as many. So I don't know, but I, I used to write a lot of them. 
Yeah, it's it's and it's also I think as you get older, you you're more practical about well, does this really save me time or is this just something I'm goofing off with? Yeah, I, I just had that happen to me recently well, with something I did. Well, and here's the other thing: in the earlier years of Daring Fireball, I wrote it was a little bit less of a general purpose. I, I don't really have a general purpose audience, but I have a wider audience. And in the earlier years, I think my audience, or at least I thought my audience, was more technically inclined, and they would want to read about Apple scripts and stuff like that. And at this point, I kind of feel like if I write a, a big, long article that's about how I wrote this Apple script, not that I wouldn't do it, because it's not like I'm, way, I'm, I'm taking an, away from an article I could have done otherwise, but I worry that it's, it's over the heads of a large part of the audience. And it was a motivation in the earlier years, like, hey, even if I blow two days writing this script, I'm going to get a good article about it out of it and I'll publish it. You know? And it was like, so maybe it's not a waste because here I'll have this article about how I did this thing. So, so John, what are some of the apps that you use every day, like the little stuff in your menu bar and, and things that you probably don't talk about much, but, but help you out? So, uh, I, here's the thing I do. Here's my big, one of my biggest tips is whenever I get a new Mac, I try to set it up as close to the defaults as possible. Like use it the way Apple intended it to be used and then start adding your third-party utilities back as you find that you, uh, I have to, I need to do this. I need this. Um, and that's a good way to shake some of the utilities that you have installed and that run at login that you don't really use that much. Um, so I've done that recently. I, I, the, the, uh, both of my machines are relatively new. Um, so here, so these are ones that I find that I added back cause I really missed them. Um, I use keyboard maestro, uh, don't have a lot of, I really don't have a lot. That was one that I thought maybe I could get rid of. Cause I don't really have a lot of, uh, macros what? that I launched from that anymore, but the few that I do are really useful. Like, what do you use it for? I, uh, there's two, two utilities I use on a regular basis that have clipboard histories. One of them is keyboard maestro and one of them is, um, launch bar. Yeah. Uh, and I definitely know I wanted launch bar and I thought I could get by with launch bars, keyboard history. But I find I like Keyboard Maestro's uh, history better. I like that they have a real search field. I know you can search for things in LaunchBar's keyboard history, but uh, clipboard history, you know, like, so you have a, a, a 50, 15 most recent things you've copied are right there. But I like the way Keyboard Maestro does it better. Uh, I find that Keyboard Maestro is occasionally useful for overriding keyboard shortcuts in a way so that it, it whatever they're doing, is is if you want to override a keyboard shortcut and make sure that the way that you've overridden it goes first, Keyboard Maestro seems to have the best way of doing that. Uh, so that's one. Uh, Text Expander is another one. where, And that's another one where I thought, maybe I can get away with this for now because Apple has built in the, you know, the, the built-in, you know, U-type... Uh, what? Autocorrect. BRB, yeah. and, it, and it expands yeah. to be right, be right back. Uh, but it turns out, nope, it does not satisfy me. So I definitely, there's some text expanders and, and the main thing with text expander versus the system one is the way that you can have dynamic stuff. So I have one, uh, where I, if I, I my trigger for all my custom snippets is semicolon. So if I, t with no space semicolon today, it expands to today's date in the exact format that I want it in, uh, I, I, without that, I feel lost. I, I feel like my computer is broken. If I can't type semicolon today and, and get the date, 
right where I'm, you know, where I am. Uh, I have actually handwritten text expander snippets on occasion. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's so too. ingrained in my, at this point. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, some of them. I, let me think what else I've got a bunch of, you know, uh, not even emoji, but those weird glyphs, like to get like the, the daring fireball style logo from zap dingbats, the star and circle, I can type DF star and there it comes. Um, so text expander, I don't have to tell your audience about text expander. I mean, man, that's crazy. Well, we, we've talked about it a time or two. Yeah. Just a few times. <laughs> uh, uh, transmit is a big one for me. I'm just looking at my menu bar. Transmit's a big one uh, because I love the feature in transmit where you can mount your, re your remote server as a disc on your uh, volume on your, your drive. Uh, I really use that at times. That's really great. And then here's another one. You guys know fast scripts. This is one from Daniel Jalkett, the guy Jalkett, yeah. Yeah, who's taken over, you know, took over Mars editor a while ago, but fast scripts is a replacement for the system wide Apple script menu. Um, and it, it, it's better in a couple ways, in my opinion, but it's the main way is it makes it really easy to set keyboard shortcuts for your scripts. And, um, I think, I don't remember, does the system wide script menu let you run shell scripts? I don't think it does. I think it was only Apple script, but anyway, fast scripts has let you run shell scripts forever. Um, so for example, I have one called clipboard cleaner. And it's so super simple. All it is, the first line is the shebang, the hash, you know, the hashtag, the exclamation mark slash bin slash sh. So it just says this is a simple shell script. And then the entire script is pb paste space, the pipe symbol pb copy. And so in other words, that those are command line things from the next era. Uh, PB is pasteboard. So you paste and then you pipe it into the copy. And all that means is if the, what you've copied is styled text, it just turns it into plain text on the clipboard. Two, two simple words in the script, but I didn't know there's other utilities that, that clean the clipboard, but I've been using this one since, I don't know, I don't know, it must be 12, 12 years. Yeah, I do that with a text expander snippet, just paste as plain text. But I mean, you're right. There's about a hundred ways to do that on the Mac. Yeah. The, uh, the, um, you know, fast scripts is, is actually really impressive if you do any type of Apple scripting and I've tried like other ways to launch Apple scripts and fast scripts always seems to me like the best. Do you do like need like the Django, like the system monitoring stuff? No. Do you, do you deal with any of that? No. I, why, why, why would I want to do that? <laughs> I don't, I don't get it. Sometimes I run activity yeah. monitor, but that it's not as useful to me with new machines. It was when I had when my MacBook Air, it was a 2011 MacBook Air and it was sort of getting on its last egg, legs. And so I would run activity monitor on that one, but then I would feel bad because I felt like it was slow, but then I felt bad because running activity monitor was by definition slowing it down at least a little bit even further. Yeah. Monitoring the machine right. takes clock cycles. Here's a great script yeah, I, that I have that I don't think I've ever published. And it's if I like on the top of my list of scripts that I've written for myself that I've never published, I don't I don't think I've ever published it. Is I call it paste URL from, from Safari. And it's system wide. So wherever I am, I can bring this up. Uh, and I think it uses, I haven't looked at the source code for a while. I think the way that I wrote it so that it runs everywhere is that some of it runs as a um, UI scripting. But the gist of it is, I know that I use Safari. Safari is my main browser. And what it does is it looks at the top five Safari windows in my stack. And I limit it to five because sometimes I've got a, a Syracusean level of Safari windows open. <laughs> 
and I know it's one of the recent ones. And it just goes through each of those top five windows. And you can configure, you know, there's an easy way in the script that you could change it from five to seven or 11 or whatever you wanted it to be. Um, goes through each window and gets the URL from each tab in that window. And then when it skips to the next window, it's a blank line. And then the URLs from the second window, blank line, URLs from the next window. And then it just presents a little dialog box. You know that Apple script choose from list dialog box? Yeah. So yeah, it's the Apple very vanilla. Apple script yeah. vanilla choose from dialog. And it's just a list of all the URLs from my top five Safari windows. And then I can go down to the one I want, hit return, and it gets pasted into wherever I am right now. I use this all the time. So when I'm like writing a blog post and I know that I want to, there's a couple of things I want to link to. I don't have to switch to Safari and find the tab and copy the URL and go back to where I am. I just hit control I from wherever I am, whether it's BB edit, Mars edit, or even anywhere else. If I happen to be using some other app uh, or email, I do it in email too. Like from mail, same keyboard shortcut. I just get a list. I go down to the URL I want, hit return and it's pasted into where I am. And I find that to be, I, you know, a crazy time saver and I, I'd, I'd go nuts without it. So can we talk into publishing that? Yeah, I probably should. I should use this as motivation to, to publish that script. All right. I'll send you an email when we're getting ready to put the show out and tell people yeah. to go check it out. Here's another one I have that to me is sort of a, a, a an anxiety type thing. It's, I often don't use it. But I, like I said, I wind up with tons and tons of Safari windows, and some of those windows have lots and lots of tabs. And it, frankly, it slows down, even with a brand new machine. I mean, there's no better way to slow down your machine than to have lots and lots of web pages open. It consumes a lot of RAM. Web pages, modern web pages do a lot of stupid JavaScript stuff. Um, but I have this anxiety where I have them open for a reason, and I don't want to spend half an hour going through window after window and closing tabs and bookmarking and stuff like that. So I have a script that I can run from Safari, an Apple script, and it just says, uh, copy all URLs, copy URLs from all windows to BB edit. So I run that script. It takes like three seconds. It's very, very quick. And all it does is make a new window in BB edit, a new text document. And it's just window by window, every URL and with a blank line to separate, you know, the tabs from the windows. So like if the first window has seven, ta seven tabs, first seven lines of the text document are those seven URLs, then a blank line. Then if the next window has three tabs, then three lines, one, you just the URLs blank line, then the next window and so on, uh, until the end, till every single URL that's open in a tab in Safari is in this one document. The document is named by date. It just says, uh, let me see what, the, what my format for the date is. The date is, because I, I just did it before we started recording, so that's, that Safari wasn't running. Uh, URLs from Safari, m-wednesday, 17 June, 2015. And then I can just save that to my Dropbox. And I've got a whole bunch of these, and I almost never go back to them. But that way, if I know that, hey, sh last week I had uh, a URL open, and I know I closed it. What the heck was it? And my and it's not coming up in my history because sometimes when you search your history, it's too much noise. I know that I have yeah. it in a thing. I very seldom yeah. need that. Usually, searching my history is more than enough. But it's like a peace of mind thing that I've never, I've never just called bankruptcy on my tabs and lost them. It's like when I call bankruptcy on my tabs, I save them to a text file, and the text file is in Dropbox. I seldom yeah, need it, sense. but I feel so much less anxious about doing that. 
And you probably got like lots of those text files somewhere. Yeah, lots of those text files. So the one I closed just before uh, I, we started recording the show has 135 lines, but a bunch of those Oof. are bl- a bunch of those are blank lines. So let me see how many are blank lines. Hold on, I can do a quick search. Let's see, find all. So 38 were blanks. So about 100 tabs. <laughs> Oh, that's well. You know what? You you cover a lot. Of this is what you around. do, though. So yeah. <laughs> but I looked yeah. through it. So it was 90, 90, 97 tabs. But a lot of them are really stupid. You know what I mean? Like I didn't need to have that open. Uh, you know, like Apple dot com slash iOS iOS nine preview. It's like you know I didn't need to remember that. I kn- I think it's funny sometimes just look at my history and see how my mind. Uh, wandered. You, you can just looking at your history, you can see where well, I started on this completely legitimate research project and somehow I ended up on, you know, beef jerky. I'm not really <laughs> sure how that happened, but it did. Uh-huh. Um, the, does the Apple Watch play at all in your workflows at this point? I mean, other than being kind of useful on your wrist? I'm going to say no. I don't think so. Other than just having the the information on my wrist, I don't find myself inputting stuff to remember yet. There, every once in a while, I'll make a remind. I'll tell Siri to make myself a reminder, um, but for the most part, no. Usually, like for stuff like that, that is why. And I still, even low these many years later, why I still, if it's a stupid little reminder that I want, it's, I write them in my paper notebook, and I don't. I can't. Yeah. Ex- I can't explain why, but it's. Uh- I was with you right up until the point that drafts showed up. And for me, drafts just solves that problem so much easier. I think but, that I think drafts is brilliant. I really do. I think it is a very clever uh, app. It's more than an app. It's a system. I think it's super, super clever. Um, who's the guy in charge of drafts? Uh, who's the drafts guy? Oh, boy, I feel bad. It's Agile Tortoise. Yeah, and it is. It's going to hit me in just one second. Well, anyway, I, he and he's doing a killer job of staying up to date His watch stuff. You know, he's way on top of it. And in fact, I would hold it up as one of the most advanced watch kit apps that's out there right now. You know, in the way that it plays into the system that that, you know, solid users of drafts want to work. It It really does seem like he's really pressing the limits of what a watch kit app that isn't native on the, the, the app on, on the watch can, can help you out. Greg Pierce. Yes. Greg Greg Pierce. Pierce, Yes. Well, well, John, thank you so much for coming on the show and and sharing all this with us. Cause you know, we all want to know kind of how the sausage is made over at tearing fireball (laughs) and, and really congratulations on such a, I thought a victorious WWDC and everybody I'm putting a link into the show notes. Um, John had, uh, Apple senior vice president of marketing, Phil Schiller come on stage and do an hour long interview with him. It was live. I was there. It was amazing. And you know, it's funny cause Schiller was one of those guys. I never really knew him that, you know, I mean, I never really understood him that much. You know, marketing guys in my head are always kind of marketing guys, if you know what I mean. And God, he felt like one of us. In fact, I wrote a post about yeah. it and, um, the, um, I just, I don't know. I, I really liked it. And John asked him some hard questions, but it wasn't like, you know, I don't know. I just thought the tone of the interview was great. I thought I, I, I came out of it with way more respect for um for Phil Schiller. I mean, I just he was kind of neutral in my head and I 
came out of there really liking the guy. And, and of course, John, you were just amazing with that. And then you were in the keynote. It was just a great year for you at WWDC. So we're going to put some links and everybody go out during fireball, the talk shows, John's um, podcast, which is excellent. And also make sure you watch the one with Phil Schiller. You learn a lot. In fact, he dropped a few hints. I never thought he would do that. Like the part, um, I know Katie's got to get back to work, so I don't <laughs> want to take too much time. But like the part where you asked him, why did you name it Watch OS and mm. make it so difficult? And he says, well, we, that may make more sense in the future. I think he said, like, just wait. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, I can't believe he like just tipped his, his hand a little bit. And well, anyway, how did you interpret uh, that? It, it could I have meant just wait and see and you'll get used to it. I, I felt like it meant eventually we're going to be mac os spelled the same way and maybe ios or I don't know. there's like there's that. no excuse for the lowercase w i don't think well here's what came to me is tv os and if you're going to spell it uh, tv os yeah. with no space uh you kind of have to lowercase something because otherwise if it's all caps it just looks like gibberish so i'm thinking lowercase t lowercase v capital o capital s yeah, and hopefully yeah. not too far off. Yeah, I don't think Mac OS ever works as lowercase. I, I it would kind of break my heart, <laughs> but I because I don't like the lowercase other than the I, and even that it seems like they're getting away from right. They're not calling it the iWatch. They're not calling it. Uh, you know, it just seems like they they didn't call it iMusic. It's Apple Music. It seems like they want to switch from the i prefix to the Apple as the the prefix for these things. Um, but I don't know. Maybe it's possible that they'll go back to Mac OS. 10. I do. I miss calling it Mac OS 10. I still do on my site sometimes because I, I do. I get confused with OS 10. I think of it as Mac OS. I still do. So every time I try to just write OS 10 like they do now, it it doesn't work for me because it's the Mac. Yeah. You can really create a text is. expander snippet to fix that for you. <laughs> yeah, but that's I what like, I've done. I like calling, it, and I worry too. I feel like maybe if there's other people out there, when I when I write out Mac OS ten, even though that's not what they call it anymore, maybe that helps clarify it when people are reading, and nobody is going to mistakenly see OS ten and read it as iOS because I do that sometimes. Somebody will write yeah. blah 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 OS ten, and I read it as iOS, and I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. You can't do that. And oh oh, they're saying OS ten. Okay. Well, and it's going to be worse next year when iOS goes to version 10. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, God. I I get so confused. I do. I make that mistake all the time. Well, Jason Snell's written on this, and I I think he's right. I mean, I think it's maybe time for the the 10 part to go away from the Mac OS. I um, I would be in favor of that. I I guess I would even be in favor of that if they spell it with a lowercase m. I'll just capitalize the m when I write about it. But I, I would be in favor of renaming it Mac OS. And that's that's how I interpreted his statement to you. Is like, okay, we're calling it Watch I, Watch OS, then it's going to be Mac OS, and maybe iPad and iPhone are going to continue to be iOS. Who knows? TV OS. I could see that kind of happening. I sure hope the TV comes soon, though. My my wife and kids are mad because we don't have YouTube anymore because we have the older Apple TV, and I'm I'm refusing to buy a new one because I just feel like it's coming yeah. at some point. I, I know you guys want to go. I know we have to wrap it up. I'll tell you what I heard last week. I'll give you a little, and, and this is not firsthand. This is <laughs> like thirdhand. But sometimes the thirdhand stuff I hear at WWDC turns out pretty well. The gist of what I heard is that the hardware was ready to go. the The SDK and the new OS where you can write apps for the new Apple TV. Uh, was ready to go or could have been announced, um, but that it was deemed when, when it came down to should we announce it at WWDC or not, there was one side that inside Apple that said that's enough. The hardware and the SDK 
and the new, whatever new features in the OS, like the new remote, that's enough. And we can do this content stuff later. Uh, and there was another side that said, we have to do it all at once. We, if we're going to have a big keynote, if we're going to put Apple TV in a, in a keynote, it needs to be everything at once for the, the, the shock and awe factor. We have new hardware, we have an SDK and we've worked out uh, these deals where you can pay whatever it is, $14 a month, $20 a month, and you can drop your cable subscription and get all these channels that they want to do it all at once. So they didn't have those deals in place. A bunch of people reported that. And so they've punted on announcing it. So my guess, and this, and this is purely a guess, nobody said this. My guess is that maybe Apple TV, and maybe it's wishful thinking too, takes the place of what Apple Watch was last year in the bigger event in September when they announced the new iPhones, uh, then the second half of the event will be Apple TV. That's my hope. That's partly informed and partly my wishful thinking that they've punted in just until September because they wanted to wait until they had the content deals to reveal any of it. Now, do we think and they it, can get the content deals by September? I think so, because I think that the, the word was that they were close. But the unfortunate part of all of this, and this was part of the side of the argument inside the company that we're like, we might as well just re re release what we have now, is that these content deals are, for the most part, U.S. only, right? There's no way that they can negotiate worldwide rights to you know most of these stations. They have to go country by country. It's going to start in the U.S. And so for everybody who's outside the U.S., and let's face it, it's, you know, it's a large part of all of our audiences are people outside the U.S. They're only going to get the new hardware and the SDK and the existing content, right? The stuff where you can buy the TV shows and you can buy and rent movies on Apple TV today, that's not going away. So it's not like, it's not like, if they don't have these content deals for a subscription service that people won't have anything to watch, you know, you're still going to have Netflix on the box. So, you know, but that's what I've heard. And, and you know, the, the thing is the existing technology is really long in the tooth. The competitors are running circles around them at this point, at least with the publicly released stuff. And I would really like the developers to get their hands on it. If they're going to be able to add games or interesting apps to it, I'd like to see what they do. Yeah. But anyway, so so hopefully, even if they don't have the deals by the end of the year, we'll have the new TV. Yeah. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Everybody go check out Daring Fireball and check out the talk show. And uh, we're going to link that, that Schiller interview right in the show notes. So go listen to that, if nothing else. Uh, where else can people find you? You're on, on, on Twitter. You're at Gruber. Yeah, that's more than enough. And, <laughs> okay and you, you can find us on twitter uh, we are at mac power users katie's at katie floyd i'm at max barkey and um thank you to one password for sponsoring the show today and we will see you all next week